This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Did you know that cannabis use could help alleviate some PTSD symptoms? Joining me on the line is Dr. M.J. Malloy. He's a research scientist at British Columbia Center on Substance Use. He's also the Canopy Growth Professor of Cannabis Science at the University of British Columbia. This week, he and other researchers with UBC published a study that looked at whether cannabis may have therapeutic benefits for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this, Dr. Malloy. Pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on. Very, very interesting study. Um, so, tell me what were some of the uh, key findings? Sure. So, one of the important things to know is that this is based on data gathered by uh, Statistics Canada. Uh, surveys was over with over twenty four thousand Canadians, and um, done in such a way that we can be relatively confident that this represents the Canadian population in general. And what we found uh, in some ways really replicated what we already knew. That is uh, a good proportion, uh, an unfortunate proportion of Canadians do suffer from PTSD. Uh, and that for many of these people, they, um, they also go on to suffer from major depression uh, and indeed from what we call suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts. However, interestingly, when we divided the, the, the group up um, between people who had PTSD and were using cannabis, and those who had PTSD and were not using cannabis, we found that the cannabis-using group no longer had those statistical links with depression uh, or suicidality. And, and the group that were not using cannabis had higher risks of those negative outcomes. So very interesting for us uh, because it's consistent with people uh, being able to self-medicate with cannabis uh, to try and avoid the negative consequences of PTSD. Certainly not a a final conclusion, uh, but certainly, I think, solid foundation for us to continue on uh, and do clinical trials to see if we can um, see these same benefits when we give people cannabis directly. And I think it's important, uh, Canada is poised to do uh, clinical trials uh, with the change in legislation. I just want to mention that um, people who suffer PTSD may have been exposed to trauma, including survivors of acute injury, conflict, violence, disaster. Um, And so these are some of the things, um, abuse, sexual abuse, that may lead to PTSD. And Canada has a fairly significant, significantly high rate of PTSD as compared to other countries. We do. And that was a bit of a surprise for us. Um, Around 10% or one of every 10 Canadians um, has uh, experiences, has experienced PTSD. Um, not really sure why that is. Certainly, we're fortunate as a country to not have had, you know, major disasters or civil conflict or the like. But, but I think it's probably something to do with the fact that we do welcome Canadians uh, moving here from other parts of the world that might that might be suffering from those sorts of uh, those sorts of events. And so, getting back over to um, those people who use cannabis who suffer with uh, depressive symptoms or suicidality. Um, why do you think it works? Because oftentimes we see people who use cannabis that may actually contribute to um, depression or anxiety. So how do you think this is working on the neurotransmitters or on the brain 
um, to reduce these. Um, certainly, um, being chill is associated with uh, cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I think it's a great question. And, you know, that's really what we're trying to understand and trying to think about as we try and move into clinical trials. I think there are probably sort of two major hypotheses that we have. One of the real hallmarks of PTSD is disordered sleep. Uh, and you often hear about people who either can't get a good night's sleep, uh, do not feel rested when they wake up, uh, and in extreme cases suffer from flashbacks and nightmares uh, when they sleep. We know, obviously, that cannabis uh, is, a, is a, many people report, it's a very good sleep aid. Uh, and so we think it might be as simple uh, as cannabis allowing individuals with PTSD to get a good night's sleep and thus being able to avoid or not being able to, uh, to fall into suicidality or depression. The other thing, and this is a bit less, um, uh, this is a bit less detailed, I guess, is that we also know that cannabis uh, plays a big role in memory. And in many senses, PTSD is a condition of disordered memory, that our, our, our minds continue to dwell on or continue to remember the traumatic events, um, and, and this creates a whole new set of psychological problems. So maybe, uh, in a sense, cannabis allows us to forget, uh, and this allows people to move on from, uh, from the traumatic event uh, and, and not develop PTSD or not develop, develop its complications. But again, these are hypotheses. Uh, and something that we're looking forward to really exploring more in clinical trials. Right. And um, you mentioned, you know, the memory. And oftentimes I mm-hmm. see in my clinical practice uh, people who have been sexually abused um, suffer from shame and guilt. They think they could have stopped it. They think it somehow was their mm-hmm. fault. Um, if they had particular arousal sensations, they, they feel guilty or they think, what if they enjoyed it? They start to ruminate. Um, they have obsessive, intrusive thoughts. Um, do you think this is something that we might see this down the road, um, that cannabis may have a use for people who suffer from things like obsessive compulsive disorder or the shame and guilt associated with some of the traumas they experience? It's a great point. And, and you know, I, I think that these are all sort of plausible ideas that you raise. We do know that, as you say, people with OCD uh, uh, commonly self-medicate with cannabis and some it appears to good effect. Uh, similarly, uh, in, many, in many senses, addiction, which is uh, the field where I'm working uh, most actively, uh, is also similarly a sort of a, comp- a compulsive disorder. People using uh, uh, heroin or cocaine or other substances, despite the fact that they know rationally that these things, this use is bad for them. Uh, it's bad for their social lives. It gets them in trouble at work, etc. So I, I think there's a lot of commonalities between all these conditions. And, you know, I'm really excited um, for us to finally be able, as you mentioned, we have legalization now, the regulations have changed, and that's really opened up the door for scientists like myself to, and clinicians to try uh, and explore these ideas in the, in the hopes that, you know, cannabis might be a therapy and might be beneficial, at least for some people uh, living with these chronic concerns. Absolutely, because as you mentioned, it it impacts quality of life so significantly, whether it be their productivity, their work, their relationship. That's what I see uh, quite a bit in my clinical practice. Um, So this study was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. 
Mm-hmm, that's correct, yes. And then the first to document that relationship between PTSD, cannabis use, and severe mental health outcomes in a sample representative of this population. Um, I, I think it's fascinating, and, uh, I, and I'm so glad that uh, hopefully you're getting, getting some funding and going to be able to continue on this research. Um, because mental illness, well, as you know, is, affects so many people, and anxiety being the number one um, illness for Canadians and North Americans. Well, you're right, uh, and and you know, unfortunately, living in Vancouver, the the signs of um, uh, the public health consequences uh, of addiction and mental health concerns are all around us. Um, you know, we're suffering through an overdose crisis, which has has claimed far too many of our fellow citizens, and in many senses, the roots of that are untreated addiction. So, uh, I'm hopeful that you know our work might contribute um, to new tools. Uh, for clinicians and and for people who are living with addiction and and public health folks, uh, because it's a terrible toll that the overdose crisis is taking. Uh, And similarly, it's a terrible thing, uh, living with mental health uh, uh, issues. Uh, And so I'm optimistic that now that we have legalization, we'll be able to push this research forward and and provide good answers to some of these questions about what the possible role of cannabis might be. Yes, that's fantastic. And and you mentioned um, people who suffered with the opioid crisis, and that affects families, parents, cousins, workers. Um, But a lot of people who have that addiction, especially you're referring to the downtown east side, I would imagine, um, beneath that addiction is trauma. It's oftentimes uh, sexual abuse or or some other type of horrific uh, trauma that happened in childhood. That's right. And in fact, you know, one of the studies that we run uh, here at the BCCSU involves more than 3,000 people uh, who use drugs, many of whom living in the downtown east side. Uh, And we have... Uh, extensively interviewed many of these individuals, and in a recent paper, a paper a couple of years ago, actually, we found that I think the number was over 90% um, of uh, the individuals in our cohorts reported some form of childhood abuse or neglect. Um, in some cases, of course, sexual uh, abuse, physical abuse, but oftentimes just the sort of, of, of neglect, of, of lack of caring, etc., that you know still has uh, uh, terrible uh, effects uh, for individuals in adulthood. So that sort of abuse and neglect was quite common, uh, as is the uh, sort of ongoing abuse and neglect. These these individuals in the downtown east side are are criminalized for their addiction. Um, they're tremendously marginalized from the the mainstream of society. Uh, they live very difficult lives, and you know it's my hope that uh, we will be able to provide more tools to sort of reduce the harm of 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 the use of very dangerous drugs uh, as a part of sort of addressing those terrible legacies of, of neglect and abuse that are, are suffered by so many people. Absolutely. And, you know, the addiction goes far beyond the downtown east side. Uh, it's in the, as somebody one time said to me, it's in the white pillared homes in the suburbs, um, you yep. know, but they get a bit of more protection. Um, they're able to yes. be hidden a little bit more from society, but um, but certainly addiction right. is rampant in, in our world today. Oh. Unfortunately, that's, that's quite true, and certainly my family is not free of addiction. Uh, my grandfather was a top civil servant who would go on benders every once in a while. Um, this devastated his family. Um, but yeah, as you say, he was protected. He had a good uh, white-collar job, which he was very good at, but nevertheless, uh, his home life was really marked um, by these, these occasional bouts of alcoholism. So Absolutely. I know our story, my story is not you know, unique. Um, and, and I'm hoping that, you know, with the legalization of cannabis and with some good evidence, you know, we can really turn around how we think about it in our addiction in our society 
It's not a question of personal failings or, or deficiencies, but it is, as you say, a mental condition that we can do something hopefully to, to address. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your work. I look forward to more work, uh, more research, um, because I have a big interest in uh, turning this around. Um, addiction, as we say, is so common, and um, and most people are functioning, but we see the non-functioning ones. Um, Dr. M.J. Malloy is a research scientist at the, at the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use and also the Canopy Growth Professor of Cannabis Science at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, Dr. Malloy. Thanks for having me on. It's great to chat. Lovely to chat to you. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. As you know, you've probably seen a few men around town growing mustaches, and that is for Movember. And I thought it was appropriate that we talk about this, especially about a study that came out in September where 1.5 million Canadian men over the age of 50, are now at unnecessary risk for prostate cancer. New findings released in a Prostate Cancer Canada nationwide survey suggest one and a half million Canadian men are not seeking early prostate cancer testing through the prostate-specific antigen, or the PSA test, which many of you are aware of. The survey called Men at Risk, the Prostate Cancer Testing Gap, shows while awareness about the importance of early detection is high, Canadian men 50 and over are reluctant to be tested. Joining me on the line is Chris Watson. He is a spokesperson with Prostate Cancer Canada, and he's going to share his story about the importance of checking for prostate cancer early. It may have, in fact, benefited him. Good evening, Chris. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Maureen. Pleasure to speak with you. So you are one of those men who may have benefited from early prostate cancer, but your journey took a slightly different path for a reason that, and you know, I know the story, I think you were pretty lucky, and a lot of men may not have that extra bit of luck that you had. Uh, exactly. I was, I was very fortunate indeed. Um, uh, I lost my father in 2008 and decided at that point, because I was a typical guy, I hadn't had a checkup in years, I decided to go for a checkup. Um, and at that point, I asked my GP, um, I didn't know anything about it, I just heard of a PSA blood test, um, I heard a colonoscopy, and I said to him, okay, I'm 50, um, I probably need to get these things. And he said to me right away, you don't have any risk in your family, you don't need either of them. And again, being a typical guy, I didn't even question it. I just went on with my life and thought, great, two less tests I need to worry about. Um, and it was two years later um, when I had an insurance renewal and the insurance company did blood work. And unbeknownst to me, as part of the blood work, they did a PSA test. Um, within a day, I got a phone call from my doctor who said, uh, your insurance company turned in some blood work test results to me. Could you come in and see me? I went in to see him and he said, um, they did a PSA test on you. And I said, oh, yeah, that was the one you didn't want. And he said, yeah. I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's 35. And I said, I don't even have frame of reference. What does that mean? He goes, well, it's a little on the high side. I now know it was a lot on the high side. Normal at that age would have been below a four. Um, So that was sort of the beginning of of my cancer journey and how I found out about it. Um, So, yeah, I I was somebody that I suspect if I had been tested with PSA test at age 50, it would have shown uh, a slight elevation in PSA. And in my case, the disease would have been caught much earlier. I, I'm alive and healthy today, but I'm one of the lucky ones. 
um, diagnosed at my stage. Um, most men um, would, quite frankly, succumb to the disease and would not be curable. In fact, three out of four of them wouldn't be curable. So I'm a, I'm a really lucky guy, um, but I have had years and years and continuing uncertainty because my disease was so advanced when it was caught. Wow. And some of the treatments result in significant side effects for men, uh, sexual health issues as well as bladder health issues, leaking of urine. And those are those may have also been, uh, I don't know if you had suffered from any of those, um, but those are significant side effects when men uh, also get prostate cancer treatment that is far too late because the treatment, uh, some, some treatment for prostate cancer today is watchful waiting, especially in the early stages. Um, and, but, but men who absolutely need a radical prostatectomy, um, some of the other brachytherapies, some of the other types of treatment, they are at risk for significant quality of life issues, not to mention, as you said, uh, succumbing to the disease. And there are so many Canadian men whose disease is caught too late. Um, your father did not have prostate cancer. He did not die of prostate cancer, I understand? No, that is correct. He, in fact, uh, had lung cancer. And that is one of the risk factors, um, prostate cancer history in the family. So if your brother or father or uncle um, had prostate cancer, it's a good idea uh, to get tested. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult. Raising awareness is critical, and Prostate Cancer Canada has done an amazing job. They've been around since 1994, and there's been a 50% reduction in prostate cancer deaths since that time, which underscores the value of awareness. And I really appreciate you talking about this today. What would you recommend men who are hitting 50 and maybe thinking about a midlife crisis and a new red car, <laughs> perhaps an affair, <laughs> what would you suggest they start thinking about instead? So there's no question. You don't have to set aside uh, the car, um, but you should be talking to your healthcare provider, uh, your, your general practitioner, your physician, your family doctor, or your urologist if you have one about whether a PSA test is right for you to establish a baseline. I should underscore that the, the PSA test is in, in and of itself not purely a test for cancer. It's just an indicator, if it's slightly elevated, that there's something going on. There could be another cause. It could be completely benign and not cancer, but it's it's leading indicator. Most men are familiar with the, the dreaded digital rectal exam or the DRE, and uh, physicians, good physicians, will use that in conjunction with a PSA test. Many men believe that the DRE is sufficient on itself and in and of itself on its own. Um, and in my case, I can, I can tell you it certainly is not because even with advanced disease, um, and I went for multiple consultations and had um, countless numbers of DREs, and none of those experts could feel anything on my prostate. Remember that the DRE only feels one side of the prostate? Yes. My cancer, as it turns out, was on the other side. Oh. So men really need to look at that PSA test. If you have, uh, as you mentioned, a first-line relative, a father, brother, uncle that has had the disease, then you should consider getting your first PSA test at age 45. Similarly, if you're black, um, because... Um, individuals of uh, African-American descent are at greater risk. So establish a baseline at 45. Depending on what that number is and what the risk is in your family, 
your physician will then discuss with you, okay, how frequently should we do it? So typically, if you don't have any risk in your family, if you get the test at 50 and maybe your number's like a two or lower, you may say, fine, you know what, we won't test you again for five years. If it's, if it's bumping up a little higher, your physician is probably going to say, you know, maybe we should check you annually. It's really important to understand that a PSA test is, is not one single test. It's measuring the change in the PSA level over time. So the importance is to start, to start at 45 if you're at greater risk or start at 50 if you're not and establish that baseline. It's critical. If it's caught early, it's almost 100% curable. What guy wouldn't want that? That's great advice. And the blood test, I want to say, is very simple and it's covered in most provinces, not in British Columbia. And is, is Ontario the other uh, province, Chris? We're- yeah, we're, the, we're the, the dirty two. Why Why men in Ontario and British Columbia are somehow valued less than men in other provinces in Canada is beyond me. But I know uh, Prostate Cancer Canada is lobbying both provincial governments to say, hey, it's covered everywhere else in Canada. Why not in your provinces? And but it's... it's- you know what, I wouldn't let cost stand in the way because, as you say, it's minimal. I think in Ontario it's like $35. Exactly. I was going to say, um, you know, it's a week's worth of coffee for you. And well worth the price of admission to have a uh, small blood test taken and give you peace of mind um, for um, a, a, a little a bit of time. Anyway, and it's just something to stay aware of. Also, nutrition is very important. Eating a healthy diet will reduce your risk because um, poor eating habits along with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, uh, Agent Orange exposure is a uh, risk factor for prostate cancer. And as you mentioned, family history and race and ethnicity. And the risk of prostate cancer increases with age, especially after the age of 50. And, you know, so many men are aware of this and the results were in that uh, survey that was done uh, demonstrated that men were aware of this, but still were not getting the test done. So I really appreciate you coming on the show this evening uh, and uh, raising awareness and educating men and sharing your story. And I'm very happy that you're in good health. I appreciate it very much. It's been great chatting with you and Thank you so much for your advocacy on behalf of men's health. Oh, well, you're so welcome. And for more information on that survey, you can go to prostatecancercanada.ca. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you, Maureen. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, hosting this program for you. We send our kids to school and we think all is good. But there's been a recent investigation into lead found in Canada's drinking water that has spurred calls for action across the country. Joining me on the line is Heather Urex-West, a reporter for Global National. She is one of a of hundreds of journalists who journalists and researchers and universities who have investigated this situation. Good evening, Heather. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So we don't think about lead in our drinking water anymore. And uh, what, uh, what were some of the key findings of your uh, investigation? Oh, you're absolutely right in that we, we just don't tend to think about this. I know that, you know, a generation ago, lead was in everything, in paint and gasoline, and it was top of mind, but lead really has sort of fallen uh, out of our, our collective consciousness. So what we found is that um, our drinking water in many parts of the country uh, be it in our homes or, as you mentioned, in our daycares or schools, um, we're finding high levels of lead throughout the country. Um, and, and there are a couple of, of, of problems here. One is that parents and residents 
have no idea because in many, many cases, uh, these test results are not being made public. We had to access them through freedom of information requests. And, and number two, in, in many, many cases, again, uh, places are just not testing. So outside of Ontario, for example, daycares and schools do not have to test their water fountains and taps for lead. And uh, and then for those schools, you know, few and far between that are testing, they're finding high levels in uh, a large percentage of their schools. So it begs the question, okay, so what do we not know uh, about those schools that aren't testing? Exactly. And is this also a funding issue where municipalities have not got the funds to update aging infrastructure from um, previous years? I think it's a question of uh, what uh, they need to do. So there's no federal mandates, there's no federal legislation that requires uh, we are our municipalities or our school boards are are testing and and ensuring that uh, lead levels are are low. And so you know if you talk about um, I know that in Alberta right now school boards are really crunched for for funding dollars. We've had some recent cuts. So you know it's finding money in budgets that are already quite tight to do something that they're not mandated to do. You know, some school boards have said, okay, this is important to us. We're going to go ahead and do it. Um, some cities have, have, have you know, are, are doing this slowly, changing their lines over. But, but yeah, it is an expensive, um, it's an expensive thing to, to do. So um, I, I think that without, you know, clear federal direction and, and, and a mandate here, uh, it, it's going to be a struggle to really see concrete uh, universal change. Absolutely. And so if we get down to some of the brass tacks, out of 12,000 tests since 2014, one-third, 33%, exceeded the national safety guideline of five parts per billion, which is shocking. It's shocking. And then you can even go further, 18%, uh, more than three times that level. So this is a really, really significant health concern. I mean, five parts per billion is what Health Canada says uh, is safe. That's, by the way, lowered this year from 10 parts per billion. But organizations like the World Health Organization and the CDC in the U.S., they are very clear in saying that no uh, level of lead is safe, particularly when we're talking about um, children and, and pregnant women. Yeah, Of course, because lead poisoning symptoms in children include developmental delay, learning difficulties, irritability, loss of appetite, weight loss, fatigue, abdominal pain, vomiting, constipation, hearing loss. Some of these are very common symptoms that kids would uh, complain of while they're in school. It can also lead to seizures and, um, and a desire to eat paint chips um, or things that aren't food, um, which is pica. Uh, and so this is quite a, um, a health concern. Babies can be born prematurely, as you mentioned, pregnant women, or they can be um, born of a low birth weight and have delays in, in developmental growth. So this is, um, uh, you know, it's great, great job you did on the investigation and um, raising awareness about this. And now what are we going to do here? Yeah, and that's what we're looking at now. We're, we're sort of uh, gauging the political reaction. We have seen some cities uh, really step up to the plate since this has uh, come to light. Cities like Montreal and Regina, they're really um, pledging to accelerate their lead replacement programs, uh, going in there with uh, increases in testing and, and promises for, for free filters for residents. Um, but then in other cities, you know, the results were almost dismissed. The Edmonton mayor came out and said, you know, he still has full confidence in his uh, city's water supply. And, you know, I should point out that, that yes, the, the, the water leaving the water treatment plants in cities is completely safe. This lead is leaching in 
um, in transit. So either from lead service line pipes or in lead plumbing, uh, lead that's in the plumbing fixtures in people's homes, so like the little soldering between the, the, the joints of, of the pipes. Um, so that's how it's getting into the, the water. So, um, yeah, we, we really do need to see some, some political will to, to change this. And because we're seeing such a patchwork of responses um, from the cities, you know, I was just doing a few interviews this morning with uh, leading experts on, on the issue of lead contamination. And uh, I did two interviews this morning. And they both said, yeah, you know, at this point, we really need the federal government to, to step up and uh, to, to provide some guidance, maybe some funding some, or, or, you know, some legislation requiring some action so that, you know, no matter where we live in this country, we have access to uh, drinking water that is uh, safe uh, when it comes to lead. I agree. I think it's very important. And I do think that, um, you know, it sounds like some of the infrastructures or um, older homes, um, you know, are are some of the areas that need to be looked at as well. And um, to ensure that uh, Canadians do have access to safe drinking water, you know, and when politicians come out and say they have every confidence, you know, it's it's so misleading and and it's unfortunate. Um, But that's why great reporting uh, that you did, along with 120 other um, media and universities um, working collaboratively to uh, get the right information and get that out to the people is so greatly appreciated. Thank you. And you can, of course, uh, read a lot more up on our website, globalnews.ca. We go into the very specific details for different cities. So no matter where you are in the country, you can go in there and uh, check out how uh, this investigation pertains to you more specifically in your region. That's fantastic. That's globalnews.ca. And this is Heather Urex West uh, joining me on the line. Uh, thank you so much, reporter for Global News National. Thank you so much much for having me. You're very welcome. Okay, so do stay with me because coming up in the next hour, we have lots to talk about, so many issues that uh, occur today. Um, we, We live on our screens. What is that doing to our children's brains? Well, I have an, a family physician and an adult, uh, ADHD expert coming on to talk about that, uh, about a new study that was released. Also going to be talking about, um, uh, how to lower your Alzheimer's risk. People should be very important. We're kind of focusing on the brain there. And uh, I went back to school this week as well. <laughs> no, I was actually invited to speak at Sutherland School in North Vancouver to their diversity class. And um, there were about 40 kids that turned up. And I thought that was fantastic that these kids wanted to learn about sex and they had lots of different questions. And so I'm also going to be talking about um, what were some of their questions, um, what I had to say about that, uh, what they're curious about. And that might actually surprise you. If you haven't had any sex talk with your kids, and a lot of parents haven't, you might be surprised to learn what they would like to learn. And then wrapping it all up, we're going to uh, go a little quiet. And I'm going to be talking to a woman who is embracing the quiet life. Um, because once again, we are chronically over busy. We are over scheduled. We are doing way too much and never doing it, as I like to say to the patients in my clinical practice anyway. So I hope you'll stay with me for the next hour. Lots to talk about some great guests. And, um, and as always, I'm so happy that you're with me this evening. <laughs> 
This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Did you know that young children who get more screen time than doctors recommend have differences in parts of the brain that support language and self-regulation? This is according to a study that was done at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in the U.S. Joining me on the line is none other than Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He is a family physician and a medical director at the ADHD Clinic. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Thanks for joining me. Oh, great, great to be on, Maureen. Thank you for uh, attention to this topic. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, so attention. So uh, kids are on screens, mm-hmm. seems, all the time. Um, and parents have a lot of difficulty getting them off screens. They're from all ages, young children, um, even into the 18-year-olds. We've talked about that, sitting in their basements, smoking pot, being online. Um, so this particular study put 47 healthy Cincinnati area children between the ages of three and five through MRIs or magnetic resonance imaging of their brains in addition to some cognitive testing. And the results were quite interesting. So uh, I'm glad that you're here to help decipher some of these results and what it means. Absolutely. This study is getting a lot of attention and and I'm very glad that um, we're spending some time talking about it. Um, Just to help the listeners, first of all, when we talk about screen time, it's good to define what screen time is. Um, screen time includes using smartphones, so not the old um, flip phones that just had digits, but actually smartphones that have you know, images and videos playing, tablets of any kind, um, television that includes TV, whether it's streaming from internet or regular cable television, video games, um, computers, um, anything on the computer, so whether it's web-based or uh, um, software that's on the computer, and here's the last one, Maureen, that we may not be thinking of. Screen time also includes wearable technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is not just um, you know gadgets that are detached from you, but now it includes things that we may be walking around with all the time on us. So that that's, that's counted in the screen time. So all of you that think those uh, watches and uh, other clothing um, separate you from screen time, it doesn't. That's included in our screen time sort of um, metrics or measuring how much screen time you have. So this study was interesting, and one of the challenges, as you can imagine, is first of all, any any study that includes children is always tricky because parents have to consent to putting their children in the study, which is understandably not an easy thing to do. Most parents are often cautious and protective of their kids. But what they did here was that they looked at how much screen time um, children had, um, and then and then looked at how that possibly correlated with um, with medical imaging, MRIs, and then some um, cognitive testing. So they used, a, they used this questionnaire called um, a Q-screen, which, then, which the parents filled out. And on it, they asked them how often the three- to five-year-old um, was in front of a screen um, for how for the durations and what sort of time, time frames. Um, and so this is for 47 children. And then what they did was they put the children into MRI machines. And just to remind our listeners, um, while that may sound um, you know, um, invasive, MRIs don't have um, radiation. It's still pretty uncomfortable, though. The child has to be in this big donut-shaped machine for a while. That's why these studies are relatively difficult to do. And that found, first of all, that white matter in the brain um, was affected. And the white matter part of the brain hadn't developed as much. And this is important because it's the white matter that we think um, is involved in imagery and executive function. Now, the other part that was concerning was that the children that had the higher screen time also scored lower on the language and literacy test. So, so in, in, in effect, what this study found was that um, 
and children between the age of three and five who had more screen time had the white matter of their brain also less developed, which we think correlates to imagery and executive function. So it affected the structure and the image on the MRI, um, but it also correlated with lower scores on language and literacy. Um, so but just one caution for the listeners is this was a cross-sectional study. So it doesn't really talk about cause and effect. What that means is it doesn't necessarily prove that the higher screen time led to these MRI changes, imaging changes, and it, or it led to the language and literacy measures. It just says that the children who had the higher screen time also had um, the, the problems with executive, not problems, but the lower executive function scores and, and, and these changes on imaging. So you have to be careful. It doesn't really tell cause and effect. And, and I think the other thing that the listeners need to understand is that it doesn't necessarily mean that because your child had, has higher screen time that they have any sort of brain injury um, or, or anything like that. It just says that there's a correlation. Um, one cynical way to look at this study would be to say that the children already have problems with language and literacy or this, these changes in their brain matter. And, and is that what's causing them to have more screen time? Are they, are, they, are they requesting or demanding more screen time? But I think the best use of this study is, Maureen, that it really does open up a discussion about what we're doing with children um, at, of those ages. This study was from three to five, but even under the age of three um, and two, um, is what we're doing with screen time, because that's really changed in less than a generation. And, and I think that's something all society, parents, teachers, and healthcare providers need to be thinking about. Absolutely, and I think it goes along with our chronic busyness and, and uh, taking so much time to make a living as opposed to actually living, and we may be um, handing that down to our children. This study was published in JAMA Pediatrics. Um, China has done something interesting with regard to screen time because they've seen some uh, health issues on the rise in in that country. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so this got a lot of headlines. Just earlier this week, um, China said that they were actually um, reducing um, uh, uh, online gaming. And so I guess what they're targeting there is that they found that children had um, were getting um, nearsightedness, so having some difficulty with their vision, and they're afraid of video game addiction. Now, it's uh, controversial on whether you believe that to be a true entity or not, but that's just something that the Chinese government is targeting. So the rules that they put in place may seem fascinating to those of us not in China, is that what they've said is anybody under the age of 18 cannot play any online video games between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. That means from 10 at night until 8 in the morning, they are not allowed to play any online video games. And then for the daytime, between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m., um, they can only play for 90 minutes. Um, you may be aware that in China, some of the economic programs actually are not just your standard 8 to 4 or 8 to 3 like we have in North America, but some of the schooling and academic programs there are actually from 8 in the morning until into the evening. So essentially what this is saying for those children that are in school and adolescents that are in school from 8 to 10 is, is essentially no video games. And for those who have shorter sort of school days, they could do 90 minutes. Of course, the challenge with this, parents and listeners are probably thinking, how could you possibly monitor a police list? But it's not as difficult as you'd imagine, because for the online gaming, you actually have to sign up with a, with a password and an ID. And so the, the, the actual online gaming providers would be asked uh, and expected to monitor this. I suppose you know, the more uh, creative kids could uh, create fake IDs and, and sort of circumvent uh, uh, the, the system. But certainly this is quite a bold move on the behalf of the government of China. Um, and, you know, you could, you could argue that perhaps it's too much sort of um, government control into something. But 
having said that, it's um, certainly a, uh, certainly been brought forward that uh, people are around the world concerned about screen time. Absolutely, and I think it's something that one can implement in their own homes. I mean, there have been other studies that have found mobile phone use can delay expressive language in 18-month-olds. 18-month-olds and another JAMA pediatric study in April of this year found that screen time can affect how a child performs on developmental testing. I think uh, I really appreciate you coming on because I think this is an important conversation. We need to raise awareness about this. You know, are we having children to stick them in front of a screen, or do we want to teach them to enjoy life? Always appreciate your uh, commentary, Dr. Parhar, family physician and medical director of an ADHD clinic. So thanks so much for coming on and talking about this. Thank you, Maureen. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show, and we're talking about all sorts of different subjects tonight. And next up, we're going to stick with the brain, and we're going to talk about how to lower your risk of Alzheimer's disease. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.